I pray that I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I tend to agree with Alfred Hitchcock that the length of a film should be directly related to the endurance of the human bladder. However, one film that had a very profound effect on me, very long as it was, was Schindler's List, the Spielberg film of 1993 that focused on the unspeakable suffering at Auschwitz. I was not very happy then, four years later, to hear that another film was out, an Italian film, that also examined the suffering of the concentration camps, but that it was also comic in parts. It felt very inappropriate. The film was called Life is Beautiful and was directed by Robert Benigni, whose own father was in such a camp. It won three Oscars, and I was wrong to doubt it. I watched it again on Friday and sat, as usual, in tears at the end. Usually, of course, just then that someone usually calls round or telephones and thinks you're having a life crisis. The first line of the film, spoken by the narrator, tells us this is a simple story, but not an easy one to tell. The story is in two halves. The first is where we meet Guido, a Jewish waiter, funny, spontaneous, very loving. He falls in love with Dora, a Catholic woman unhappily engaged to an unpleasant fascist. And with touching, relentless, comic moments, he woos her and eventually, literally carries her off on a rainy night out of her restricting, class-ridden, unhappy life on his uncle's horse that has been painted bright green by anti-Jewish thugs. In the midst of the threatening clouds of fascism, these two celebrate together their pleasure in the simplest of things, eggs, a bike, a kiss. They marry and have a little son, Joshua, and to watch the three of them is an absolute joy. Guido makes everything fun. He loves Joshua with a reckless, spontaneous, deep love, and his wife with the same. And they all live as friends as well as family. It is indeed beautiful. One day, though, on Joshua's fourth birthday, Dora returns home to find that the Nazis have taken Guido and her son Joshua away to the train bound for the concentration camp. She races there and although not a Jew herself, insists that the train is stopped so she can get on it too. Although she's not in the same carriage, she's going with them. She cannot, will not let them go on this journey without her. At the camp, to survive the horror, Guido tells 
little Joshua that they have entered a big game with lots of tests and that they have to score a thousand points to win a brand new tank. By not complaining about being hungry, by hiding at certain points and doing what the game leaders in uniforms tell them to do. He pretends each day that he's going out to play hopscotch and ring a rosy with the other men, whilst really he's being burdened with carrying iron anvils, slowly crushing his body. Guido hides the brutality by his fatherly fun. And when he stands to attention in the rain, shouted at and imprisoned by wolves and dogs, he continues to smile for the sake of his son, just as he rescued Joshua's mum in the rain too, that day on a green horse. Eventually, the war looks as if it's ending, and the soldiers are keen to cover up their evil deeds and get rid of the evidence. There's panic and movement. And Guido puts Joshua in a small postbox-shaped cupboard and tells him not to come out until everyone has gone because they're all looking for him, because he's winning the game. And if they find him, he loses. Meanwhile, in all this confusion, he puts a scarf over his own head and runs to look for his wife. It's here that Guido is discovered by searchlight, pinned on a wall. He's taken away and marched past the cupboard where his son is still hiding. They see one another through the postbox hole and Guido, still true to the fun, to the game, true to his love, winks and marches like a toy soldier to reassure his son that all is well to make him smile just one more time. We hear the bullets a few minutes later. Joshua is later rescued by US troops in a tank. His dad was right, here's his prize. As he rides on that tank, he sees his mother and calls out. They hug and hug, thin and tired, and Joshua shouts out, we won, Mama, we won. Here's the tank. Joshua's voice then comes in years later as the film ends. This was the sacrifice my father made for me, he says. It was his gift. In this series, where we're exploring the conversation there is often to be had between faith and film, Life is Beautiful has many lessons to enjoy in it, not least in the first half of watching that simple family survive in the midst of a prejudiced society where sinister forces are at work, but where they so clearly prove that happiness is not having what you want, it's wanting what you have. This is a film about the human spirit and its resilience. It's about life's possibilities, even in horror. It asks us what it might mean to lay aside yourself in order to somehow find it. I was at a talk the other day when the speaker said 
that we should try and set aside an hour every day, a day every week, and a week every year to stop striving. Striving to have more, to look better, to prove. Instead, we should stop in these times and see the gift and good we already have. Such Sabbath moments, he said, will keep us human. Guido and his family celebrated the gift and the good they had. Of course, political ideologies can remove this at whim if given power. And I was left wondering whether that question of what would I have done in the 1930s when fascism was on the rise in Europe is best answered by asking yourself, well, what am I doing now when the same is happening in many places as I speak? There are Christ figures in this film. Dora, though not a Jew, joins those on the way to their suffering. Her love can't be separated from those who make up her life. She reflects God. Guido similarly works with contagious love and affection in the midst of evil to save the buoyancy of the human soul, to prove that hope and courage and humor and love are mightier than bullets and pain. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, said St. Paul, will be able to to separate us from God ever. In Guido's heart, goodness is stronger than evil, love is stronger than hate, light is stronger than darkness, life is stronger than death. He does anything he can to protect and keep hope alive in his child. He reflects God. Joshua, which of course is the same name as Jesus, believes his father no matter what and receives life because of it. This was the sacrifice my father made for me. It was his gift. And over the holy days ahead, we will find ourselves saying the same thing. A final thought Knowing that human beings like always to identify a common enemy, usually an outsider, to keep their own group together, an embodiment of evil on which they can then throw their violence, we find Jesus asking his followers to break the cycles of retributive hatred and to learn to touch the untouchable. Instead of the one being castigated by the 99, he tells a story of leaving the 99 to find the one. He dies as the unjustly persecuted scapegoat who willingly takes our violence on himself to break the circle and stop others being scapegoated, praying even as he dies for forgiveness, not revenge. That cross 
is the judgment of our judgment. He absorbs the hate as old as Cain's for Abel, but without passing it on. And he bids his followers do the same, so that these mechanisms of projected hate are broken. He dies as we must live. The scandal remains when we don't. And in his own way, Guido does the same. Robert Graves actually wrote a poem about Jesus being alone in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and only having one friend there with him, that little goat, the scapegoat, that had also been sent out into the wilderness on the Day of Atonement. And together, under the stars of dark and the lonely nights, those two kept themselves warm. There, against all the odds, life was beautiful. <laughs>